Our story of Jacob continues according to the 32nd chapter of Genesis. At night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise, everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask for my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. The word of the Lord. Some of my fondest childhood memories include my grandmother. She was a pastor's wife for over 50 years and a lady in the truest sense. She believed that it was risque for a lady to show the ankle. She never left the house without a swipe of red lipstick and a dab of Chanel number no. 5 behind each ear. And she never learned to drive, firmly believing that it was quite literally the least men could do to chauffeur the fairer sex from shop to shop, napping in the car with their hats shading their eyes as they patiently waited. Somehow... Between endless entertaining, calling on parishioners in nursing homes and elderly neighbors and gardening, she managed to find time for me whenever our family visited. I treasured most the times when she and I would sneak out to the porch, pull out the Chinese checkers board, pour Coca-Cola from a glass bottle, into two fiesta-ware glasses with ice cubes and play. She taught me her best strategies and was infinitely patient with me. I grew rather cocky around the ages of 10 or 11, I believe it was, when I smugly realized that the student had become the master. I simply could not lose My grandmother would whisper in hushed astonishment, Sarah Beth, you've crushed me again. 
and then she would wink at me. My undefeated record lasted through junior high and high school, and my fame spread throughout the nursing home crowd, her gardening club, and the Golden Agers social club that she regularly hosted. She died unexpectedly when I was 20, devastating me in a way that a death does when you grow up thinking a person will last forever. It was then on the threshold of adulthood, with no one to shield me from the truth, that I realized my grandmother had been lying to me for years. She had been losing in Chinese checkers on purpose, just to build up my self-esteem during my otherwise extremely tumultuous childhood. She had begun this noble deception about the time when my mother left, when life was hard and sad for me, and she had evidently thought my being the undefeated champion of Chinese checkers among the 60 and over crowd would give me a shot of confidence. She was not wrong. Even though I did not go on to pursue the National Chinese Checker Championship, which I'm sure I would have won had I tried. (laughs) Does my discovery of my grandmother's deception make me love her less? By no means. It makes me love her more. It makes me sense the depth of her empathy and her love for me. She sacrificed her rightful victories in order to give me a sense of success and control in at least one place in my life, she decreased so that I could increase. But the power was in her corner. I just didn't know it at the time because I was a kid. I'm not a kid anymore. Jacob, in the book of Genesis, is not a kid anymore either. This reading, in my opinion, is the climax of the Jacob story. This is where the proverbial excrement hits the fan. Because chickens are coming home to roost for Jacob. He has not seen his brother Esau in over 20 years. Following on the heels of last week's reading, Jacob is on his way home with his two wives, Leah and Rachel. About a dozen kids, servants, livestock, herds, and wealth. He is left Laban far behind, and he has set his sights on Canaan, where he will return home, a powerful man who has made something of himself while he has been away. There is but one problem. In order to get home, he must pass through his brother Esau's land. And if you recall, the two-parted on extremely bad terms when Jacob swindled his older brother out of his blessing and his inheritance. 
So by this time, no, Jacob is not a kid anymore. In fact, by biblical accounts, he's 97. But who's to say what a year was back then? Nonetheless, he's old enough to have two wives, a pile of kids, and a heap of wealth, so he's not a kid anymore. What's on his mind, we wonder? What is on his mind as he journeys towards Esau? Surely he's considering the possibility that Esau just might have him killed, or at least robbed as he passes through, and what's worse, Jacob knows he deserves it. He is filled with increasing dread and guilt as he draws nearer and nearer to his brother's land. And then, because Jacob is Jacob, he has an idea. Jacob sends a messenger to Esau, informing his brother that he will be passing through, and that, coincidentally, he's also extremely rich. A subtle bribe? Not so subtle. The messenger comes back and says, hey, we delivered the message to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men. (laughs) Panic, sheer panic grips Jacob. So it's to be war then, he thinks. And then Jacob has another idea, because Jacob is Jacob and wants firstly to save his own skin. He decides to send everything that he has ahead of him across the river Jabbok, his wives, his kids, his servants, his flocks, everything across the river. By then it's nightfall, and Jacob calls out to them across the river and says, You guys go ahead. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'll catch up with you in the morning. And then night falls, and blackness surrounds Jacob, and he's left terrifyingly alone. Suddenly he is gripped by guilt. Conscience attacks him. All night long he wrestles and he fights and he battles like he's never battled before. He wrestles with his sins from long ago, struggles with the fact that he may have just sent his family to their deaths Because of the crimes that he committed against his brother, all night long he wrestles with this thing. Is it a demon? Is it an angel? Does it come from heaven or hell? Is it Satan? Or is it God? Finally, in the morning, after wrestling all night long, Jacob begins to think he is winning until his opponent breaks his hip. And then Jacob realizes the sheer strength of his opponent, and he collapses on the banks of the river, breathless and exhausted. His opponent asks his name, and Jacob struggles to his feet in excruciating pain, and he utters one word, Jacob. But it is more than just one word, because in the Bible, your name carries meaning. And when Jacob says, Jacob, it is a confession, because behind it lies a flood of sin and deceit and trickery, and it is all there, Jacob's entire selfhood laid out bare in front of his opponent, this powerful opponent who could easily kill Jacob 
with just one more blow. But the opponent does not kill Jacob. Instead, he blesses him, and he gives him a new name, freeing Jacob from his soiled old name and giving him a new beginning. You are now called Israel because you have wrestled with God and you've won. Here's the thing about winning a fight with God. You only win a fight with God if God lets you win the fight. God is clearly stronger than we are. The Bible offers plenty of proof in this regard. From the 10th plague, when God murders the Egyptian firstborn sons, to when God drowns the Egyptian army, as they pursue the Israelites through the Red Sea, to the annihilation of Sodom and Gomorrah, to the massacre of Jericho when the wall falls, God flexes God's mighty muscle plenty of times. But God's wrestling match with Jacob is different. It's a foreshadowing of New Testament mercy, that while God could easily crush this pesky Jacob, God does not. God knows we all need a victory from time to time, especially during those times when life seems to be collapsing all around us. God invites us into struggles in life so that we can grow stronger. But God does not abandon us in our struggles. No, God is right there with us on the mat as we fight for our lives and battle with ourselves and who we've been, who we are, and who we hope to be. When we say that we are up all night wrestling with our demons, Perhaps it's not a demon. Perhaps it's God confronting us with those things that are most difficult for us to confront, inviting us to wrestle our deepest fears, growing strong enough so that these things don't crush us. You can bet that Jacob walks away from that river a stronger man the next morning. But he also bears a limp for the rest of his life. A far cry from my grandmother's wink. As a reminder of who really holds the power and the strength and the might, lest Jacob be tempted to revert back to his former cocky self. God shows God's power that night on the banks of the Jabbok River, not by killing Jacob, but by not killing Jacob. By letting him wrestle and by letting him win. True power, then, lies not in the flexing of muscle or in the striking out at the weak and the vulnerable, but in showing restraint, mercy, and grace.